Welcome to the Nopalera podcast, a place where I share the journey of building my company from the ground up, as well as the stories of others in our community. I am your host, Sandra Velasquez, founder of Nopalera, a culture-forward brand that celebrates and elevates culture. Aside from making great products, we are cultural storytellers with a mission to inspire our community to stand in their worth. In this podcast, you will hear a mix of solo and guest episodes around the entrepreneurial realities of building a company. I launched Nopalera from my Brooklyn apartment with no outside funding while working three jobs, raising my child in the middle of the pandemic at the age of 44. Thank you for joining me on this journey. I hope it inspires you to live boldly. Today's episode is a very special one. Known by many as the godmother of beauty, Margarita Riagada is a beauty industry icon who many beauty founders are fortunate to call their mentor. A quick Google search of Margarita will reveal numerous articles and introductions that refer to her as the former chief merchant of Sephora, a position she held for over a decade over the course of her almost 20-year career at the famed beauty retailer. She is responsible for bringing in many of the brands that we all love and enjoy today, but everyone has an origin story. Icons are not made overnight. They are often driven by experiences that occurred early in their life, and that is the story we are sharing with you today. I am so honored for Margarita's willingness to share these details with you and I, and I know it will inspire all of you to continue your own journeys of self-discovery and to realize that success is not marked by job titles or financial brackets, but rather by how courageously you achieve being yourself. Margarita is the living proof that coming into your own is a lifelong process. There is no deadline or schedule. Life is an experience. Hi, Margarita. Welcome to the Nopalera podcast. Hello, Sandra. Thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be here. I have been wanting to have this conversation with you really because your story we often hear in the press and in articles and in introductions. We always hear Margarita Riegada, the former chief merchant of Sephora, dot, dot, dot. But we know that your story does not start there. And so I'd love to rewind and tell us about Margarita who arrived to the United States and I believe you were 13, is that correct? 12. When you arrived? 12. 12. Okay, I'll let you tell the story. So tell us, who really is Margarita? Who arrived here when she was 12? I'm just, I can't wait to hear. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you, Sandra. Thank you for that question, because you're absolutely right. That is typically what I'm asked about. So yeah, I was born and raised in Lima, Peru, South America. And I arrived to the States when I was 12 stemming from my mother running away from Peru, running away from uh, marriage due to infidelity and not being accepted, just not being happy. I, I felt that my mother was stifled in being who she needed to be, and she was a very vivacious uh, woman. And she very, you know, in a stealth way, she schemed her way to run it away. She told my dad that she was going to visit her sister in Acapulco and with their, with their kid, you know, my, my siblings, um, he signed the passport. She pretended to forgive him, like everything was fine. And so we vacationed in Acapulco. And then one fine day, she said, we're going to go and explore Mexico. And we hopped on a on a Greyhound bus and got to the border of El Paso, Texas. And there began, I think there began 
my life on, you know, how I was shaped and the experiences and the love for my mom. But basically, I, I'm spending time sharing this piece because it was such a an important moment in my upbringing. My mother, who had her life savings, her jewelry, or, you know, everything that we had, the bus was held up in El Paso, Texas. It was robbed. And they robbed her of everything. Luckily, nothing happened to her. But we arrived at the Greyhound Depot with no money. And I watched my mother as she asked people for money so that she could make a call. And so, you know, what started this journey of what I experienced as a little girl and my parents' relationship and my country and witnessing this hardship of my mother Yet she was courageous, she was strong, but I think that it helped shape me to be someone who lived with fear most of her life because I wanted to overcome it. I think I was just in such shock of having witnessed what I witnessed at such a young age that I thought to myself, oh, I don't think I could ever go through what my mother went through. And so I think I was a high achievement individual, but motivated by fear. And I, so I worked hard. I was a hard worker. I developed a career motivated, uh, of course, by wanting to provide for my mother so that she would not ever work a day in her life. But that's who the real Margarita was up until recently, you know, someone that was shy, introverted, you know, proud of my culture, having witnessed a lot that I didn't understand. And I think it um, made me more introverted. And it took a lifetime for me to come out of my shell. Wow. Um, When you were in Acapulco on the bus, on your way to El Paso, do you even remember what you were feeling and thinking back then? Did it feel normal? Did it feel scary? Did it feel, you know, when we're young, whatever is happening is kind of normalized because it's all we know. And we don't sometimes realize the real impact of something until we're much older. But in that moment, I mean, 12 is, you know, you're aware, you're not three, you know, you are 12. So you already had friends, you had already been in school, right, in Lima, Peru. So for you to leave, First of all, congrats to your mother, because that is a very courageous act. Very, very courageous. But I did not know while we were on vacation where we were headed. So we did not know. I don't think anybody knew. You know, now, um, you know, of course, I've gone back to Peru as my mother's friends. You know, did you know? Did you know? And no one knew. Her sister Mm. knew because her sister helped to get us visas. But we did not. Mm. Maybe my older brother knew, you know, I never asked, but I did not know. I didn't. And when we hopped on the bus, she didn't tell us where we were going. She said, we're going to go discover Mexico. We're going to go and, you know, see all these other towns. So she didn't know. I think that my mother did not want to worry us, at least me. Um, And she did a good job. I would have worried. I am uh, up until recently because I think that I've only come into my own uh, in the last few years, but I've been the warrior in the family. And so, yeah, I think she avoided that. So I didn't know. And so when you say that once you got here, you worked so hard to make sure, like fear fueled you, I think is 
what you were saying. And that's what kind of propelled you to work so hard and get a career to provide. The fear was of what? Of that financial instability that your mother faced? Yeah, or was of, of everything. The Yes, financial instability for sure. But I was... I was raised with a strong father figure, and so I feared authority. I, I feared not having enough food to eat, which is far more precise than just, you know, financial instability, just, you know, not being able to eat, mm -hmm. you know, today. Survival. Survival. I was afraid of speaking up. I mean, I was definitely, you know, raised in an environment of, you know, calladita te ves más bonita. And, um, mm -hmm. and so I, I would not speak up. I don't, I don't remember ever speaking up. <laughs> I don't remember just, you know, being kind of a postage stamp type of a child. I just wanted to be good. I didn't want to get in trouble. I don't want to stir, you know, the boat. I don't want to create problems for my mother. I mean, I was afraid of my own shadow. I think I was the poster child for, you know, the most amount of fear. I think I was that person. Yet courageous and strong because I plowed through, you know, for uh, various different reasons. But, but yes, I was, I was afraid. And so you come here and I'm assuming you don't speak English yet when you're 12. So you're learning a new language. You're learning a new culture. Where did you eventually land. So I know you crossed the border in El Paso, but you didn't stay in Texas or did you? We did not. So her aim was to come to Los Angeles. And, um, and so she had friends here, some relatives. And so we landed in a, and I, I just don't even know how, how she got the money. I, but all I know is that we got on a, a Greyhound bus again and made our way to Los Angeles. And within a week, so we stayed in someone's home. Within a week, I saw my mother knocking on doors and asking for work, mowing lawns, cleaning houses. And my mother had left a very aristocratic marriage. So we had, you know, we had cooks, we had, you know, housekeepers. And so she had never worked a day in her life. So that again, you know, I remember as if it was yesterday, that vision of seeing her down the street as I would walk and there she was, you know, mowing the lawn with my brother. And so soon thereafter, she managed to get a job at a factory and it was unionized at the time. She had the graveyard shift and she eventually had three jobs. So we arrived in the month of May and in the summer, I learned English enough to get by so that I could start school in the fall. But I didn't really come into my own until maybe high school. I lived in East L.A. and I went to high school in West L.A. I would take, you know, several buses to get to school. So I worked hard. I started to work and babysit as soon as I could, maybe in 14 years old. And when I was 17, my mother had listened to a commercial on the radio for this school. It was a business school that ended up shifting to the Fashion Institute of Design and Merchandising. And the commercial said that it, would, it guaranteed you a job placement after the school. I had wanted to study architecture and she had said, no, no, you need to work. And, you know, that's going to be too expensive. It's going to take too long. You need to work. So she actually enrolled me in the school which ended up being a blessing. And I remember her saying, after we filled out the application and they accepted me, and she said, okay, this is it. You're on your own. 
And so I started to, I went to school. I was at that time working in a department store in Bullock's department store in LA on the selling floor. I remember Bullock's. I haven't <laughs> heard that word in so long. <laughs> yes. I'm dating myself. And my, one of my managers, I, you know, we'd always have these little assignments that I would do on the selling floor. And one of my managers said, you know, you're really good at this merchandising. And I was studying interior design, fashion interior design at the Institute. And he said, you know, you should take some classes in merchandising, which I could do at the time. And then Bullock's asked me to join their executive training program. And there began my journey into being a buyer, being in stores, and it began my career in merchandising. So how old were you then when you're working at Bullock's and you are studying merchandising? 17. You are, so you're still in high school. I'm just out of high school. So I graduated from high school at 17 and, um, Got it. and started the fashion institute. Okay. You've begun your career in fashion. This is the very kind of like chapter one of your career in fashion. And is that where you thought you were going to stay? And how did your mother feel about that? Did, was she happy about that? Did she feel like, okay, great. You're working, you're making money. This is, oh, yeah. this is the point. Yeah. No, she, I mean, she had no sense of whether I was in fashion or interior design, you're making money. <laughs> it was a job. It was, it was, it was a job. stable. Yes, I love fashion. I still love fashion. And I thought that was it. I, I decided I wanted to be a fashion director. And at that point in time, you had to be a buyer first. And in order to be a buyer, you had to do in stores, work in stores, you know, back and forth. And so I became a buyer in fashion. And before I could get to that fashion director role, I was told that I needed to go into another buying role. And it was going to be in the home area. And I thought at that moment in time, you know, me and secure me, right, fear of everything, that I wasn't worthy of that fashion director role. I thought it was a punishment. You know, home at that time was like basement. You know, I didn't understand the home area. And I thought, you know, I, what am I going to do with pots and pans and dishes and towels? <laughs> Not realizing that the company had vision of me inserting my fashion expertise to see if I could do something exciting in the home area, which is exactly what ended up happening once I got with the, I got with the memo. And, and I loved it. So I transitioned from fashion into the home area and was able to really help transform the home area into something that was fashionable and, you know, very, very exciting. And so, yes, I originally thought that I wanted to be a fashion director. And then I just realized, okay, just let it go. Just enjoy this. And it helped me to, I traveled around the world really discovering artists and, you know, bringing in new ideas, uh, launching, creating new categories. And that sort of became my claim to fame, if you will. Where do you think you got this sense of, I guess, fashion or design? Because I know I don't have that gene. Like, don't ever ask me to decorate your house. <laughs> but some people have that gift. You know, like I have someone on my team who has that gift. Is that something that you felt came naturally to you? Did you learn that from your mother? Like, what were your surroundings like? Where were you pulling that kind of, I guess, inspiration from? Because that is a real skill. Yeah, I didn't, quite honestly. I was just doing my job. I mean, I think I related to apparel. I, I, 
you know, now that you mention it, I've never thought about this before, but now that you mention it, I do remember being little, very, very little. So I must have been, I don't know, maybe four years old. My mother used to knit and she used to sew and she would have this magazine of these knitting, you know, these beautiful little outfits. And I do remember a red little dress, knit dress that I remember saying to my mom, I want that. I want that. And I think I like, I was like, I nagged her and these little coats. So I think I, nobody's ever asked me that question before, but now, and I, and I was going to say, actually, I didn't know, but now that I think about it, I think I didn't know maybe since I was little, um, that I had these fascination with these little outfits. And then of course, I'm really, really dating myself, but I grew up in the era of Shirley Temple. Yeah. And so, you know, you'd watch these movies. And so I do think that I liked that. But I think I only re fully realized it when I became an assistant buyer in fashion. Mm -hmm. I was in the junior area, but I was an assistant buyer in designer fashion. And I took a liking. I understood what designers were doing. And I felt that I could add input and value. The irony was, I, and I was, you know, I would attend fashion shows and I just loved the whole creation piece and, you know, and how it made someone feel. But the irony is, is despite the fact that I wanted to stay in fashion as a merchant, I didn't really end up loving it because there is little impact that you can have in, in fashion. You know, the designer houses really have the impact. So it's not like you can go, well, I'd like to have that little sleeve on that little thing. And I want, and I'm kind of like that. I like to tinker. Like I, I want it like this. And it really is, you know, as a buyer, you go, well, I'll take the spring season or I'll take, you know, collection A or collection one. And I, I even feel that I could really impart uh, my point of view. And so I ended up leaving when I left, when I entered the home area, it actually opened up these possibilities for me that I, I didn't realize I had uh, creatively. I want to just go back to something you said earlier about when you were working in the department store and somebody, I don't know if it was a man, a woman, but someone, maybe your senior said, hey, you're really good at this. You should go and study merchandising. You should go and take a class on that. Mm -hmm. It stuck with me because... We all have those people along our journeys that kind of see something in us or recognize something and kind of push us in a direction that changes the trajectory of our lives. And I'll give you an example. You did that for me. When we were at the Wheel Grow Latina, I think it was like a reception or like an opening party. And I was in the middle of my fundraise, very stressed out, <laughs> you know, trying to keep it together, but very, secretly very stressed. And, you know, you just said, so how is the race going? And I said, well, it's going okay. You know, all the venture capitalists are on vacation right now, but it's going fine. I'm, I'm going for a million. And you just very casually just leaned into me and you said, you should really raise two because it's the same amount of energy and you're going to need the runway. And in that moment, it just, I knew that you were right. And mm -hmm. I I think I went home either that night or the next day and changed the pitch deck to say two <laughs> instead of one. And thank God, because we really did need the runway, because now look at what's happening in the economy. Can you imagine? Yeah. So we all have those people along our journeys that it's like a moment. It's like one thing that they said that really changes the way that you move the lens mm -hmm. and proceed. And so I'd love to hear from you. I'm sure you have 
you are that person for many people, right? You didn't just do that for me. You are that person for many founders in the beauty industry. But I'd love to hear from you some key people that you feel did that for you. And that one person that you mentioned kind of stuck out like that for me. You were right. It was a he. He was my department manager. And he was like the first person because I, I didn't have mentors growing up, but there were those moments. And he was the first one that said, yeah, you're good at this. You should do that. And I went and did that. That also happened when I became a buyer in fashion. I worked for an iconic fashion buyer at the time. And I was her assistant. And she said, I was working at Bullock's Wilshire, which was a very traditional uh, department store, a luxury traditional. And they wanted to bring in youth and create a new area, a new department for younger fashion. And she said, you'd be great at this. And I was like, what? What? I mean, I was 20. I wasn't even 21. I said, what? I've always just been afraid. I have never thought enough of myself. And she said, yes, yeah, you'd be great. And she recommended me. And just like that, I became a buyer, not feeling ready because she believed in me. So she was important. She was pivotal. When I entered the home, I was sort of, by then I had a little bit of experience under me and I was a little bit arrogant, like, you know, because I felt I was punished and here I was pouting. And I remember the GMM, general merchandise manager at the time, called me into the office and he said, what's wrong with you? And, and I said, oh, you know, you don't like anything? I said, well, what's there to like? Everything is like horrible. <laughs> But nobody has ever said to me, he at that moment, he said, look, you've got 30 days to get your act together. I was told, I was told that you were, you would come in and that you could fix this, that you would have the talent. And of course, nobody ever told me that. I just thought I was punished. And, you know, there you are. You're going to be the merchant, you know, in this dungeon type of a area. (laughs) And when he said that to me, I thought, wow, somebody believed in me? Somebody somebody actually thinks I could do something with this? So he was important and he helped shape me. He understood that there I was and, you know, and was going to create. And really it was a magnificent golden era for me. And then really, you know, what comes to mind is the chairman of Sephora who hired me. You know, it was a serendipitous moment of when I ran into him. He and I had known each other from Macy's days, actually Bullock's that, you know, was purchased by Macy's. He had been president of Macy's East. I was in the West and we had had the opportunity to work together. And I think he knew my work ethic, which is, has always been consistent in, in my career. And I ran into him. At the airport in JFK, he was landing from the West Coast and I was getting ready to board. And I had just finished resigning from a job I held at Yadra. And he says at the moment that he saw me, the light bulb went out. He had an opening for the head of color cosmetics. And so he called and here I was ready to take this vacation, this much needed vacation. I had never taken more than two weeks off ever in my career. And he called and he said, hey, you know, would you consider beauty? And I, working in a department store, I did not like beauty, which was called cosmetics at the time. I thought it was a very 
kind of a prima donna type of space. And I, I have been in charge of just about every area in the store. But I remember one saying to myself, I would rather, you know, work in televisions and rubs before I work in cosmetics. <laughs> so I just, I just thought, oh, I can't see myself there. And so I remember saying to him, do you not remember me saying that I would never this area and he was like it's not cosmetics it's beauty and it's different you know it, it's different with the antithesis of department store and I was like no um and I had left retail at a time of which retail was starting to go downhill from a service standpoint it was becoming more promotional and I loved the brand side and so I also said to him I don't want to go back to retail you know there's just you know nobody does service right and and so long story short, he believed in me more than I could. The reality is I was afraid to go into the beauty space. It was so foreign to me and I didn't think I could relate. You know, the model was young and I clearly wasn't. And so, but he believed in me, you know, he believed in me more than I did. And he was, and to this day, an important figure in my life and in my career. Did he hire you at JFK or you just ran into him at JFK I ran into and then he called you later? He called me later, yeah. yeah. Okay. It wasn't an easy hire. It was a process and it took some convincing. But in the end, he gave me that freedom and liberty because he had faith in me. I, I remember at the beginning being very cautious and saying, I think I you know, would like to go to New York. You know, would it be okay if I go to New York? And he would go, uh, hello? <laughs> you can go as you want, you know? And I was just really, really intimidated by the whole industry and the space and the model. And I was fearful. It took me a while to you know, step into my, into that role. And so here you are, this fashion person getting pulled into the cosmetics or beauty space. How were you received by the existing team? Did it feel like, who is this woman coming in? What does she know? Or did you have to win them over? What was that climate like? It was like? exactly like that. It was <laughs> very, very young. And it was like, oh my God, they hired mother. Um, it's what I felt. I don't think anybody said that, but I had replaced someone who looked like Miss America. And to this day, she looks like Miss America. And I think she wants beauty awards and she was gorgeous, you know, beautiful, young. And, and then I come and yeah, I was very intimidated, very insecure. And I, no, I can't say that I was well-received. You know, I didn't come from the beauty space. And so I'm sure, you know, people were very, very skeptical, rightly so. And so it took a while and it took me a long time to get my footing. And I actually, you know, I turned to the stores. The stores have always been my security blanket, my comfort level. It's where I see the, you know, my people. And so I started to spend time in stores on the weekends in order to learn the process and it was the stores that took me under the wing and helped me learn. And I was comfortable in the stores. I always did stock. You know, I'm, I, I did everything I could give wrap, I could sell. You know, I was always very, very humble. But it is how I learned the consumer. It, it is how I learned the business. And it is what helped drive me and fuel me and develop this level of expertise that I ended up having. It's because I got very close to the customer 
and the people that are closest to the customer. So now let's fast forward for time's sake here, because we could, this could be a whole TED talk <laughs> presentation on different chapters of your life. So you're at Sephora. This is how most people refer to you, right? Margarita from Sephora, et cetera. Now we all get to hear the backstory, which is so beautiful. So now you leave Sephora and now you start Valde. I have my Valde right here next to me. I li- And I'm not just saying this because I'm talking to you. I travel with it. It's every other lipstick I lose, you know, cause they all look the same. And if this is in my purse, I see it like glowing, you know, from the bottom of my purse. Mm-hmm. And every time I pull it out, people are like, what is that? And I always make everyone hold it because I'm like, it's as beautiful as you think it is here, hold it. And they feel the weight and congratulations on this beautiful mm-hmm. brand, but tell us the vision, you know, why you started. Yes. And I guess we know why people can Google and see that it's inspired by your mother. Mm-hmm. But I guess, again, kind of bring that your mother back into the story here as to now margarita is a different margarita now at this point. Yeah. So margarita before the current margarita had to go through a transition (laughs) period because I left Sephora without having a plan as to what I was going to do on my next chapter. I left it in a very spontaneous moment in time that comes back to my mother. My mother passed away of at the end of 2014 She was 92 and she had suffered from dementia for 10 years and I took care of her. I had caretakers, but I financially took care of her. And I had three kids in college. And there there was a moment, I guess, for me of this realization, this inflection point of realizing Sephora was very much in the study she goes. It was at a moment of which there was a social media explosion and I knew that it needed to evolve. And I felt that my merchant team needed to have more ownership of that next chapter of an evolution. I knew that it was going to be a groundswell moment for retail, for beauty. And I didn't feel I was so removed from the day to day. I had such a strategic role that I didn't feel I could influence that evolution. And I felt that my merchants really needed to take that on. And so I no longer had this financial burden because of my mother's care and my kids were soon going to be out of college. And so I thought it was an important chapter for them to own and pass that baton to them and for me to be relieved and and figure out what life was going to be like. And so I made a decision spontaneously. I heard my mother's voice when I was in a meeting with my CEO and I heard her voice say, este es el momento. And I spontaneously resigned. And what I did not expect, I was excited and exhilarated of this next chapter of exploring and I'm ready and I've been an entrepreneur. Let's see what's out there. I was prepared to go into tech and to something that was innovative. I was really, really, really excited. And the reality was, there were a few things that happened. You know, one of them, I realized that the Sephora family had become my family. And I was grieving my mother's loss. And while I had now the opportunity to be with my kids and, and, my, and my family, my immediate family, I had this big gaping crater of a much larger family that overnight went dark. And so I grieved for a year. I realized that there was nothing out there that could replace the experience I had just had with Sephora. And so I had a moment of profound reflection of where I surrendered to God 
And I said, okay, clearly I don't know what I'm doing. And so I turned it over to you and take over, you know, I want to meet my destiny. I want to meet my purpose. And I kind of, you know, that next morning after this profound dark moment that I had lived, I saw, you know, it was a bright day. I felt happy. I felt hope and an opportunity for me to consult. I didn't think worthy of myself to even charge for consulting came up. I took on a project. It was a retail design project. I didn't charge for it pro bono, but I enjoyed this aspect of I'm doing something for someone. I'm helping them out, which has always been my comfort level. And there started my consulting strategic advisory. I joined a few boards and I was pretty happy until the following year, I started to put together a photo album of my mom for my family. And I was going through these pictures of her, realized that she had lipstick in every single one of them. And I had this moment of remembering how important lipstick was to her. And of course, that at the end of her life, I realized that she did not remember me. She did not recognize me. But every time I took out that lipstick, it made her happy. And how was it possible that she never forgot how lipstick made her feel? And so I wrote mm-hmm. that thing down. I, you know, I didn't think much of it. I never wanted to be a brand founder. I thought that my calling in life was to really help usher other people's visions. But I realized that I had something deep inside that I needed to express. Part of it was my mother's story. Part of it is the significance and beauty that I felt was lost in this moment that we're living in beauty, this over-commoditization, you know, these great mm-hmm. founder stories and this purpose. And then it just all fell into place as, you know, this aspect of inclusivity or, you know, where women are in the industry or the fact that we don't have, we have a seat at the table, but we're not at the head of the table. And everything just came flushing in on like this passion, this point of view, this perspective that I have that had just been shut off. I wasn't ready to be shut off. And I have a lot to say and a lot to share and the desire to impact. So I'm crying. And let me tell you why. Because I think we've all heard the story of Valde, you know, being about your mother. Exactly what you just said. And that the reason that it's designed the way that it's designed, it's because it's like our armor. Yes. You know, it's it's resilience, yes. right? But listening to your story now, it's not just about your mother. It's about you. It's me. It's exactly right. The, the, this, whether it's my mother, whether it was God, you know, this I doesn't matter to me what the commercial success of the brand. It has led me to being who I am. And I'm so grateful. You know, I know that a lot of women may depart this life and not realize what it is to come into their own. This is the most important thing for me, the, my most important achievement that I am now courageously, I am who I am meant to be. I think that I'm, I'm on my way. Okay, so I'm emotional. <laughs> no, I think it's, it's, um, it's it's way bigger than lipstick, right? It's about you. You're no longer afraid. I'm no longer afraid. I'm not. My passion and my vision is significantly 
bigger than my fear. I mean, I think we need fear for sure. I think it's important. It's an important part of nature. But, mm-hmm. oh, no, there's nothing that's going to stop me. Nothing that's going to stop me. And I and I feel the strength. I feel the courage. I now understand this, this journey. It took me so long. I mean, I launched in the middle of pandemic. And I think for the first year, I was in shock of what I had done. And, you know, and have to like plow through the fear. And and now I am, I'm empowered. I've taken it back. Mm -hmm. I've taken myself back and I'm on my way. And taking everyone that I can find with me because it's where we all belong. And it is this place of thriving, coming for circle, realizing that's where my mother was. She thrived. Because she was able to be in a place, in an environment of being free to be who she wanted to be and live in her, live her life in her own terms. Being proud of being a housekeeper. She was richer than anyone else and was financially wealthy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Well, I think we have to end here with some rapid fire questions to lighten up here. <laughs> but first, I just want to say thank you for sharing that, your, your entire story, Margarita, because again, I never knew what it was and I have never heard anyone talk about it. And I think that the bigger takeaway here is that all of us have a journey, right? It's We're not just our job title. We are not just one thing that all of us you know, have a series of experiences that lead us to become who we are. And that is very unique to each and every one of us. So tell me, number one, what is the best advice you've ever received? To follow my instinct, I think, to listen to myself, but that inner part of myself, right? Not the mind, because I think mm-hmm. the mind can be treacherous on us, but that inner, mm-hmm. that inner voice where I think our souls reside. Mm-hmm. It's definitely easier said than done, right? Can you describe your perfect day? Perfect day for me is, I will say, I need sun. (laughs) So Mm. I think, you know, I need to be able to see sunshine, even when it's winter, you know, or fall. Perfect day for me is being with my family, being happy, being myself, being surrounded by people that I love, you know, just back in, in our roots, listening to music. That's a perfect day for me. I love that it was a feeling-based perfect day. Yeah. That it wasn't like, and then I work at my computer, or then I... No. <laughs> I love that, that it's feeling-based, because that's ultimately what what lasts is feelings. What This is a hard question to ask you, I don't know how you will answer this, but what do you want to be remembered for? Oh, I want to be remembered for caring. I'm, you know, I'm here in this life. I want to leave this life on an empty tank. I want to leave all my potential out there. But it's important for me to be a good human being. You know, I don't want to compromise my my values. And I want people to know that ultimately, bottom line, I didn't have an agenda. I really just cared. (laughs) Yes. I mean, I feel that. I'm sure I know a lot of other founders 
feel that way about you as well. Margarita, thank you so thank much. Thank you. Sandra, um, this has been therapeutic. <laughs> thank you so much for allowing me to share my story. Thank you for asking the questions that you did. And I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to be seen and heard. Thank you for being here with us. Remember to leave us a review on whatever platform you are listening from. Spread the word so we can impact and grow the community. If you are an entrepreneur looking for more real talk and resources, you can join my entrepreneurial newsletter from my personal website, sandralilavelasquez.com. But also visit nopalera.co to pick up your favorite self-care items for yourself and your loved ones. Join the Nopalera mailing list to be the first to hear about new products, exclusive promos. You can find us on Instagram and TikTok at nopalera.co. Stay resilient.